it's Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. Hello, and welcome to Monster Mondays. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the weekly podcast Film Seizure, that you can catch every Wednesday at FilmSeizure.com or at a number of podcast providers online. And when it comes to watching a Godzilla film, there are a few different flavors that you can choose from. If you want something a little more silly and you just want to see two grown men in rubber monster costumes wrestle each other, there are so, so, so many entries to choose from. Even that option breaks into two different categories as well. You have some movies like Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, uh, Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, and Mothra vs. Godzilla that are kind of silly, but all in good fun and a couple of the best uh, early entries in, as far as the Showa era goes. Or you can opt for the very crazy ones that curiously straddle the very thin tightrope between brilliant and nearly unwatchable, like All Monsters Attack, aka Godzilla's Revenge, or Godzilla vs. Gigan, or Godzilla vs. Megalon, and we'll someday be catching up with those. In the later Heisei and Millennium eras, the movies would still feature guys in rubber suits fighting each other, but they tended to have more themes and at least attempted some different ideas. So that's another flavor. You have Godzilla vs. Biollante that dealt with a scientist's loss of one of his children. You had Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah that had an awesome time travel plot and idea. You had Godzilla vs. Desotroya. That, uh, that had a heartfelt farewell to the King of the Monsters. Then later on, you had Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, giant monsters all out attack. That featured a really interesting idea about the embodiment of grief and guilt and anger felt by the Japanese people with their history in World War II and stuff. And there was also Godzilla Final Wars that covered both the goofy and the really welcome fun of seeing Godzilla just lay waste to everything and any and all of his rivals. When it comes to actually wanting to watch a serious Godzilla film and something that explores the relationship of the people of Japan and a rampaging monster that almost seems to come from hell itself, there are really only two films in all the movies made that I can really recommend. 1954's Gojira, the original Japanese version that I will someday touch upon, and this week's featured film, 2016's award-winning Shin Godzilla. Think back to earlier this year when I covered Godzilla 2000. I said that that was released in Japan only one year after the failed Roland Emmerich American Godzilla film. And it was a direct response to the American Godzilla and its critical failure, and worse, its failure with fans. Toho needed to bounce back and give us what we wanted out of the big G. Shin Godzilla is a completely different concept. Shin Godzilla was in response to the success of 2014's American Godzilla film, and Toho's announcement basically was as follows. Yeah, this is a pretty good timing for us to make our own new movie. The American one had success, so if we want to do something, we need to get on this now. So the plans for this reboot actually go back even further to 2013. Toho had reached out to Hideki Anno, who worked on the animated Evangelion anime series and films, uh, but he initially declined, stating that he was worn out and in a bit of a depression after throwing 
everything into one of the Evangelion films. However, collaborator and friend Shinji Higuchi later convinced him to step up to the plate, and the pair were announced as co-directors of the film in 2015. The concept of Shin Godzilla, and by the way, Shin means a few different things, including new, true, or God, that last one, and another translation offered by Google Translate of heart, is particularly interesting based on some of the themes that this movie would draw from. And this would follow something that Gojira would over 50 years prior, analogize a real-world tragedy. Everyone knows that the original Gojira was an analogy of the terror wrought by the atomic bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Shin Godzilla would draw inspiration from the Fukushima nuclear disaster following the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami in 2011. Basically, this nuclear disaster was pretty much as big of a major accident as Chernobyl was in 1986. It required a zone set up in a 12-mile radius to keep people away from the leaking radioactive stuff following the earthquake and tsunami damaging backup power and containment systems. In some ways, even the 2014 Godzilla film drew from this as well in its opening scene. I remember when all that happened, and it was a pretty bad deal. Uh, I've lived through both of the Level 7 incidents on the international nuclear event scale, those being Chernobyl and Fukushima. And yeah, that took up a ton of the news cycle for a while. Nuclear power is great, but if there's a problem, there's a big issue that needs to be addressed immediately. And I've now mentioned a couple of times that Shin Godzilla is an award-winning film. And yeah, it was. The Japan Academy Prize is basically the Academy Awards in Japan. Shin Godzilla racked up a ton of nominations, 11 in all, and it won seven, including Picture of the Year and Director of the Year for Anno and Higuchi. That's an incredible achievement for a Godzilla film. I would put that on the level of, I don't know, the next Avengers film winning Best Picture at the Academy Awards. I personally really like this movie, but it carries with it some baggage in the fan community. Some seem to get hung up on the fact that we do see a lot of characters and there's a lot of um, back and forth scenes that take up a long time that's stuffed with a ton of dialogue that maybe sometimes doesn't make as much sense to Western audiences, but I will get more into that later when I talk about the three things I like about this film. As for sequels, you would think that we should be due one soon. Part of the licensing agreement between Toho and Legendary was for us to make our own American Godzilla features. Um, and what, and part of that deal was that there really couldn't be a year in which both Toho and Legendary released a film. Godzilla King of the Monsters was pushed from 2018 to 2019. And Godzilla vs. Kong, Kong was pushed from 2020 to 2021 thanks to COVID. Now with Legendary only in the planning stages for a follow-up to last year's GVK, uh, Toho might be able to get their own movie made again. However, in 2017 and 2018, Toho did make three animated films featuring Godzilla and some of his pals, and we're going to get to those later on. But as of 2018, Toho announced that it wanted to establish a shared universe similar to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so a sequel to Shin Godzilla is not exactly in the cards. I suspect that this film that we're going to talk about here 
this week will basically stand alone and we'll get a new Godzilla film before too much longer that would not connect to anything and follow that up with maybe some standalone films for Mothra, Rodan and such. But we'll find out. We'll see. But let's get into Shin Godzilla. And there's actually a really nice touch here at the beginning where they use a similar sound and reveal of the title that was used in the original Godzilla film. And afterwards, the movie opens with an investigation of an abandoned boat adrift in the bay. And there's a sudden eruption and water leaks into the Tokyo tunnels and disturbing traffic and what have you. I suspect Akio from last week's Gamera vs. Garen would be quite upset with this development, but... Uh, maybe uh, maybe he's gotten over his whole uh, traffic accidents uh, hang up there. But anyway, so they don't really know what's causing the problems in the bay. There might be a strange volcanic eruption that caused the problem. Uh, that would potentially account for the steam plumes rising from the bay as well. However, some of the people being evacuated and kind of going along the bay are starting to see something bizarre in the water. And the government begins to try to figure out what happened, how to tell people not to be worried, and how to proceed from there. And it's really important that those who have seen the footage of the strange creature that might be in the water kind of toe the line with whatever the government decides to chalk the disturbance up to. And this is a major portion of this movie, at least in this first act, and I think it's incredibly fascinating and done well as a serious satire of how the modern world would react to such bizarre happenings and how governments would have to deal with that with their citizens and 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 how they would make them try to feel safer now as the eruptions die down the government decides that maybe this isn't that big of a deal but our member of the cabinet who has seen footage of the large marine animal that likely caused the problems he goes by the name of rando yaguchi uh, he speaks up only to be slapped down by other members of the cabinet. And shortly after, Yaguchi's take on the situation is proven as footage on the TV shows a giant tail flapping about from the water. The cabinet and ministers debate what to do with the creature. Most want to exterminate it and be done with it immediately. Some want a live capture because the use of weapons in the bay would be rather dangerous. Nobody seems to agree on exactly what to do, so the government meets with expert biologists and paleontologists, but they aren't satisfied with them not really knowing what this creature is because they haven't seen anything like it before. Um, and so the government sees that as a waste of time to even talk to scientific experts. Also, the government doesn't really know what department should be dealing with the issue. There's a lot of red tape going on here. Now, meanwhile, the creature does come ashore uh, through a tributary from the bay and the first form is far more aquatic the creature's body is large and looks a lot like what we might expect from Godzilla's torso and tail but he's got flipper feet and gills and kind of googly eyes the image of his googly eyes is funny at first until he starts to expel fluid from his gills and then it starts to become kind of terrifying as it looks like goopy red blood coming out of the sides of his throat Worse, it's about three hours away from crawling directly into Tokyo. The desire to blow up the creature begins to grow, but you need to evacuate the city. It's important to understand that the Tokyo metropolitan area is the most densely populated area in the world. 
this is an utter mess to try to get people to calmly leave the city to even try to kill this creature. And the loss of life is incredible as the first form of Godzilla begins to trample Shinagawa. Oh, and there's a bigger problem, too. The article signed by Japan at the end of World War II means that they can't necessarily directly justify the use for armed combat against the creature. They can mobilize the uh, ja- the, Jap- uh, the Japanese Self-Defense Force, um, but would they also have to ask the United States to help destroy it? Or is this creature even something that you can get the JSDF to mobilize for? It's not an armed creature, or it's not an armed uh, presence. So it, there's a lot of fuzzy stuff that they have to kind of work through with the United States. And also the prime minister is very nervous about giving the authorization to send troops into uh, to normal residential areas, but he ultimately really doesn't have a choice here. Now the creature begins evolving in front of everyone's eyes. He grows legs to support him walking upright and his front flippers will soon become small hands as his torso begins to reshape itself into something more like a bipedal dinosaur. Shortly after, the area has been confirmed evacuated and the JSDF are ready to open fire, but they have to be called off because there are just a couple of elderly civilians who are slow to get out of the city and they're still on the ground trying to evacuate. And the prime minister refuses to endanger any civilians and this allows the creature to escape toward Tokyo Bay and return to water. The next day, in some ways, it seems as though life not too far away from where this uh, creature was just rampaging through a city almost seems to more or less return to normal uh, in the areas that weren't touched by the damage. It's a nice, again, a little satire on how people removed from tragedy will go on living their lives, even though they may not be that far away from the tragedy itself. I should mention that all of what I just explained was in the first 30 minutes of this two-hour movie. It's a very densely packed setup to show how utterly powerless we might be to a natural disaster. Heads of state would be required to protect citizens, but also needs to make decisive and unprecedented orders. Uh, But that head of state would also have to work with the bureaucracy of the government, too. It's a total mess. So Yaguchi gets promoted to lead the bureau to analyze and come up with plans for the creature. And one of the scientists brought in, Hiromi uh, Ogashira, uh, determines that perhaps the creature's energy comes from nuclear fission. And the fallout from the attack that the creature took is already being noticed by the people in Shinagawa. The U.S. sends a special envoy, a woman named Kayoko Ann Patterson, and she's the daughter of a senator who uh, is married to a Japanese woman. And she gives Yaguchi a disgraced biologist's name, uh, which is Goro Maki. And Maki had studied the effects of radiation on biology. And he was kind of obsessed with it because his wife died slowly from radiation poisoning from poor tactics used uh, to dispose of nuclear waste. And it was his boat that was found at the beginning of the movie. He named the creature Gojira, or Godzilla, and he pretty much figured out that Godzilla fed on improperly dumped containers of radioactive waste in the ocean. 
Godzilla was then mutated into a new life form. Now, interestingly, Goromaki is a huge and important character in this movie, but we never see him. It is kind of... It's... He's dead, is what we get the impression of, but it's very likely that after he did all of his research, he left he left it to be found, and he committed suicide, though we don't actually ever see that. I just find it interesting that Goromaki is referenced a ton in this movie, and we never see him. Now, Godzilla returned to the water after evolving because his, nucle- because his internal nuclear reactor needed to cool off, so this gives the task force an idea. How about... They force Godzilla's body to shut down its own reactor by using a blood coagulant. Uh, Before they can decide on the exact blood coagulant delivery system, Godzilla fully evolved into his fourth form, which is basically a giant bipedal creature that we are used to seeing Godzilla take, has resurfaced. And this time, the JSDF is ready to attack and given the command to engage. And this... This doesn't really go very well. Uh, The bullets and rockets fired at Godzilla hit him right in the face, but it does nothing. Um, You know, even the missiles don't really do anything. Uh, In fact, uh, it leads the prime minister to now say that they can use anything and everything, but nothing really seems to work against Godzilla. Who saw this coming? Anyone? Anyone else see this coming? I know I, I pretty much could have told you this is what happens, but they do find out that heavy artillery seem to slow Godzilla, but they aren't able to destroy him. Um, Godzilla is able to basically brush them off and continues on to Tokyo, more or less unimpeded. And things are about to get a whole lot worse. The U.S. are now sending in B-2 bombers to blow up a whole bunch of Tokyo, and the decision is made to evacuate the prime minister and the entire cabinet. And as the bombs fall on Godzilla, he begins to bleed, but he recovers very quickly. Then Godzilla vents what appears to be massive amounts of radioactive energy as he begins to glow purple. His mouth opens and splits, it kind of splits open, it's a very creepy thing, and fire begins to pour out of it as if he's throwing it up. And it it ignites the entire ward that he's in before he's able to focus it into a very uh, sharp beam of atomic energy and begins to destroy the B-2 bombers as he's also able to emit rays from his dorsal fins to protect himself from the bombs they're dropping on him. And Godzilla proceeds to destroy a bunch of Tokyo in at least three wards completely and totally demolished. And he even hits the helicopter that's carrying the prime minister and Japan's top officials. The the expulsion of that much power and energy forces Godzilla to basically shut down into a dormant state. But the radioactive fallout is quite terrible. Yaguchi's burrow uh, ends up teaming up with a group from the U.S. studying Godzilla. And they learn that Godzilla can reproduce asexually. And each one of his little babies can potentially evolve into all sorts of different types of creatures and spread out very quickly across the planet. Because the U.S. is now concerned about Godzilla eventually being able to land on the West Coast, they now plan to drop a nuke on him that is 75 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. This would basically wipe Tokyo off the planet. Yaguchi's team works overtime 
to get enough coagulant to try to freeze Godzilla and completely shutting his blood and his reactor, his internal reactor down. And Godzilla appears to be slowly reawakening and will be fully operating as he was before in about 15 days. And the UN has given Japan 14 days to evacuate the strike area. And the clock is ticking to get people out and to get the coagulant into Godzilla. While everyone works hard on a final solution to Godzilla, the monster's tail is starting to crack and act weirdly. You see, this is where his babies come from. They basically just kind of pull themselves off of the tail and then run off into the world. And he's beginning to give birth. Yaguchi's team solves a puzzle left behind by Goromaki about Godzilla's cell structure. And they find that the coagulant uh, will have a chance to work. And the UN uh, agrees to delay the launch of the nukes to give Yaguchi's plan a try. And the JSDF and, and the United States attack Godzilla to make it discharge energy to wear him out again and the teams are able to successfully knock Godzilla down to the ground to administer the coagulant and Godzilla is frozen and we learn that the isotope that is created by his radiation will be exterminated totally actually relatively quickly meaning that Tokyo will not be a dead city after all so there is hope for Japan However, it will forever be haunted by what could have been as the frozen Godzilla now stands still in the middle of the city. And we do get a shot of it right before the credits showing that he was indeed in the middle of giving birth when he was frozen. And so they really dodged a bullet there to make sure that uh, there wasn't an ongoing Godzilla problem. I also tend to think that that also was there to kind of leave open the possibility for a sequel. But now it's time for me to get to the three things I like about Shin Godzilla. And there are lots of things I could choose from here. I think the first thing we need to address is the absolute realism this movie gives us. It's actually almost depressing to realize that our society could not allow for swift action to try to prevent a major disaster created by an unexpected biological attack in the form of an unidentified creature. Our civilization does not allow for someone to do much more than to give what would hopefully be a learned and well-considered approval to take action. The problem, though, is that we departmentalize so many pieces of our governments that everyone would either pass the buck or attempt to actually try to supersede another department. The bureaucracy would be a total detriment to saving lives if a threat was to happen and kind of stick around. Hell, I can't help but to think of the COVID-19 pandemic and how we desperately needed swift and strong leadership, and it still didn't prevent a million people in the U.S. from dying. Uh, this is a movie that says that science can save us, but we need to, the time to actually make the science work. Trying to force a solution by might or by ignoring the problem doesn't do anything for an ever-present threat. Now, second, I really like the pace of this movie. Yes, there are a lot of scenes of people bouncing around trying to figure out what they should be doing about the monster, who has control over what, and also trying to get the approval from the Prime Minister, who's very reluctant at first. But it does this a lot, but it also doing this in order to show the absolute chaos it would take to combat this. So yeah, this ties back to the first like I mentioned, but yet there's still one more 
you know, there's still more in this pacing. This movie, um, it, it is keeping this movie kind of keeps things rolling along, which means that we get Godzilla just about every 20 minutes or so. And the human story in between those Godzilla scenes remains fast paced and interesting. While every Godzilla film has a human element to it, for better or worse, uh, really only the original Gojira and this one has a human drama to it. Godzilla brings with it disaster. That's why many of his hero films in the Showa era took place out in uninhabited places. You can't have your hero being to blame for collateral damage too often. But in Gojira and in Shin Godzilla, we have something wholly different. This is about the human response to disaster and tragedy. You're in the room trying to solve the problem with the main characters. And speaking of the main characters, uh, Hiroki Hasegawa, a Japan Academy Prize nominee for Actor of the Year for playing Rando Yaguchi, is really good in this. You see him uh, go from being a young member of a department to the head of his own bureau to his utter relief that the plan that he has to take responsibility for works. And you are riding this through with him the whole way. He's fantastic. You're in his shoes the entire film, and most importantly, you like him. And thirdly, this version of Godzilla is absolutely terrifying. The first time you see him on land, he's kind of a derpy, goofy-looking thing. In a way, you almost feel sorry for him because it's like, oh, that poor guy seems malformed or whatever. But he's barfing radioactive material out of his gills as he rumbles through a city. That seems dangerous. Um, then we watch him stand up and create this even more opposing appearance. The whole time, Godzilla looks like a thing from hell. Um, you don't think that his skin even covers his body quite right. He's kind of sinewy, especially when he reappears later in his fourth form. He doesn't seem to have lips, and his teeth almost look like they're on the outside of his mouth. Uh, he looks uncomfortable. It's gross and kind of terrible in the, oh God, hell has come to devour us all sort of way. And you could kind of understand why he might be a little uh, mean about this. Because like I said, he doesn't look comfortable. He looks like he's in pain. Um, and then right in the middle of this movie, uh, Godzilla's atomic rays is one of the best moments in any Godzilla film over the course of its now 68 year career. I remember seeing that for the first time in a packed theater when it played for one night only here in Indianapolis, and the entire audience gasped in fright. It was awesome. The operatic score that accompanies that moment just adds so much weight as we see Godzilla utterly destroy three entire wards in Tokyo. It's exciting, it's dramatic, and it really shows the real threat of this unstoppable beast. To have it appear right dead center of the movie was perfect. Now, if you were to ask me where I think this movie lands on the overall rankings of Godzilla films, it's hard for me to say, really. I've long thought that the original Gojira is the best film of the entire series and was kind of untouchable. But seeing this again recently, Shin Godzilla is either a very close second or Gojira and Shin Godzilla are number one and number one A. It's safe to say that the two films that actually deal with tragedy close to the Japanese people when, is when Godzilla is at his best. 
That wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. You can catch new episodes of Monster Mondays each Monday at FilmSeizure.com. Don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to Film Seizure to get both the Film Seizure podcast and Monster Mondays at your favorite podcast providers as well as YouTube. You can also check out my website, bmovieenema.com, to read new articles every Friday morning. Next time, we close out this month of Japanese monster flicks with the first of the Yokai Monster series, 100 Monsters. So, until next week, stay spooky. Mm-hmm.